Welcome to Brain Health 365, the podcast focusing on innovative, holistic, and integrative approaches to brain health and healthy aging. Our host, Brian Brown, a national cognitive health expert, will discuss and interview top experts covering wide-ranging topics focusing on his 10 principles for brain health. We invite you to engage and join the conversation. Welcome to Brain Health 365, the podcast, where we talk about healthy aging and looking at the brain and keeping it healthy. Today, we're pleased to have our guest, Dr. Diego Mastroeni, who's an assistant professor at Arizona State University Biodesign Institute, part of the School of Life Sciences. His current research is examining genetic changes within the brain regions affected by early Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. He holds additional faculty positions at the Banner Sun Health Research Institute, Maastricht University, Department of Psychiatry and Neuropsychology, and the School of Mental Health and Neuroscience. And I'd like to take this time to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Mastroeni. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. We have a, a lot to unpack. Um, you and I have worked together for many years, and your area of expertise has always been a great interest area of mine. Um, this area of genetics and epigenetics in terms of looking at Alzheimer's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases, and that fits completely into the mold of brain health and where it goes from there. One of the things that um, we know that are risk factors for aging are all of these chronic conditions. And, and Medicare has a, a list of all sorts of chronic conditions that people who are aging typically, typically befall them. And those risk factors start this, this progression of disease. And a lot of people always want to know, um, am I destined for these chronic conditions that come while we age? And where does the aging process come? And what do our genes say about that? And, and so let's just start a conversation of breaking down the building blocks of, of really um, life and, and looking at risk for these chronic diseases that we see specifically as people age. So give me an indication of just some of these building blocks of life. Well, yeah, yeah. So... Um... Uh, I, I assume you're speaking of DNA, um, and basically that's the, more or less the hereditary type of material that that we we get from mom and dad, um, and, and that's kind of the beginning. So the DNA is passed down to the next generation in these big old chunks. They're called chromosomes, and so we get 23 of these: 23 from mom, 23 from dad, and each parent passes on half their chromosome to each child, and this is the basic underlying code that makes us who we are. But is it really, you know, um, I know if I know you, Brian, you're going to ask me questions and challenge this paradigm. Um, but, you know, but some other really interesting things about the DNA, and I think it's just fascinating, is that um, it's something that people don't know, a lot of people at least, is that every cell in a person's body has the same exact DNA, no matter if it's a brain cell or a skin cell. And another interesting fact that if you were to unwind this DNA or this code, it would measure 10 feet in length. So if you can imagine we're having to pack all this code into a single cell, 
and we're asking it to do very dynamic processes. You can imagine that it's so important to maintain the stability of the DNA through the lifetime of the organism. So in a few real simple words, I guess, so DNA is essentially the blueprint of life because it contains all the instructions that are needed for the organism to grow, to develop, to survive, and to reproduce. Mm -hmm. That would be a real basic outline of, of this underlying code that we use to predict our disease path or our life path or our healthy aging path. So, so that as the building block. So all of us have it. The code is in all of our cells. And yet still we see people who, like you said, 23 from mom, 23 from dad, have a genetic susceptibility to disease. Now, the question that, that a lot of people want to know is, is that a lifetime susceptibility for disease or does that susceptibility change over time? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, you have an initial set, a gene set that is provided you in utero um, that is given from mom and dad. But the experiences through life, like anything else, can change this gene set. So your genes are not, are not your destiny per se. They, they provide an initial blueprint, but the experiences that you go through life, that's what really dictates your gene expression profile, whether these genes are able to make the proteins that are required for everyday living. So these are very much influenced by the environment, but not necessarily the environment on the outside. People always think, well, these environmental stimulants, you know, they, they, they can uh, make me higher at risk for this or that. But everyone has to remember also there's an environment inside of our body as well. And it could be inflammatory. It could be um, all these different types of biological things that are happening inside. So it's not only the environment on the outside, but the environment on the inside that's really important as well. That, that's a great point. Um, so really the genes that you're born with um, do not Essentially, they're not the susceptibility genes that you die with. All of those influencers, both outside and inside the body, change your susceptibility to these diseases, specifically as we age, because we know that the body goes through changes as you age, which then really changes the, the, the stability and the susceptibility of diseases as well, correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in a sense that could be true. Um... I think to really change your gene set, I would have to argue that a mutation would have to occur because you always are going to have your same genes. Now, when we talk about epigenetics, we talk about the ability to make sure genes are turned on or turned off. Um, so really, I think that you will always have your same gene set. And I think that's an important point to make. But I think that... Acceptability. Yeah. But so, so these things that, that can manipulate your genes... Those are absolutely influenced by the, the environment and milieu inside your body and also the environment outside your body. So let's define the term epigenetics. Let's, let's, let's unpack um, that definition and then we'll, we'll, we'll go into some, some more specifics in terms of what we see during the aging process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is always a tough one, and I, and I, and I get it all the time, to be honest. So uh, epigenetics, uh, via Latin terms, literally means above the genome. Epigenetics. So I think the easiest way to describe epigenetics is an analogy that I always used 
and I compare it to the computer. So most everyone understands the basic concept of the computer. So if the genome is the hardware, then the epigenome would be the software. So without the software, the computer would not run any programs, right? So the software will tell the computer which programs to open and which programs to close. And this is the exact same thing that happens in our cells. Sometimes we need some genes turned on, and other times we need the same genes turned off. There are many different types of epigenetic mechanisms that can regulate this gene expression. But I think um, for the sake of simplicity and keeping this program PG, I think we'll talk about DNA methylation. <laughs> Sounds good. Let's talk about DNA methylation. So, um, you, know, you know, you know, and you know, I, I've done a lot of work with DNA methylation, and this is by far the most studied epigenetic mechanisms. Um, if you can remember uh, your basic biochemistry or, or even chemistry course, uh, if, if you guys had to take that, unfortunately, like I did, um, it's just the addition of a methyl group um, on, on any substrate. So in this case, it would be on DNA. And it's, added, it's added onto a significant base. In this case, a cytosine base in DNA. So then the methylation can change the activity of the DNA, and it allows it to either be open or closed. If it's open, it allows that gene to be expressed. And if it's closed, it allows that gene to be active. So, so, so Dr. Restaurant, so we're talking about basically turning on and off our disease genes through this methylation process. That's correct. So we may have a risk for these disease diseases, but through this methylation process, that risk is then amplified when we flick it on um, through this process. Yeah, that's correct. And, and actually, you know, it's interesting too, is that in disease, what we find is that there's a lot of genes that should be turned on, which are turned off and vice versa. So they're not only susceptibility genes, like in, in Alzheimer's disease, for example, there's, there's, a, there's a handful of genes that make you at risk. Um, and there's a lot of papers out there that show that these are DNA demethylated. So that means they're overactive. Um, and and they, they create a lot of these pathogenic pathologies that we find in Alzheimer's disease, like this amyloid plaques, this buildup of amyloid. So we find these genes, and this particular gene is called APP. And this gene is hypomethylated, which means that it's making a lot of this particular protein, which we do not want, obviously. So... With that, um, we have this opportunity um, through some means of ours. So, for example, let's talk about things that we can do to potentially reduce those types of genes to be turned on, some preventative measures. So let's talk about brain health in particular, since the show is Brain Health 365. What are some things that are known right now that we can do to potentially um, turn off some of those um, brain disease or neurodegenerative disease um, uh, markers? Yeah, that, that's an ongoing study, you know, um, you know, which disease, which genes to target, for example. I think generally speaking, living a healthy lifestyle and healthy aging are, are synonymous. I think that it's, it's, it's often, you know, I get this question all the time on um, people asking me, you know, well, I do, I do crossword puzzles every single day. Um, is that, is that going to help me, um, with my, my dementia risk? And 
I always reply, sure, you know, that'll help for sure. But what would help even better is if you did it with your left hand. Um, so what happens, I think, as we as we age, we become complacent. Um, you know, when we're young, we're always learning, right? We're always creative. We're, we're learning new things. We're making new connections. Um, we're always trying to figure things out. But as we get older, you know, we pretty much know everything. Um, well, we think at least. Um, and so I always encourage people to draw if you have never drawn. Paint if you've never painted. Uh, learn to woodwork. Learn different things. Always learning new things. This is creating new synaptic con connectivities. And this is a really important thing. Is that So the environment, you, you have the ability to change these things that are happening naturally to you. Um, it's just the complacency that I see as we age, you know, we're just not challenged enough. So it's not only, not only, um, doing crossword puzzles or, or, or learning to paint, but also taking care of your body, healthy exercise, exercise and eating right. Uh, we know that nutrition is a, is a critical component to healthy epigenome. Um, you know, living these more of these Mediterranean type diets, uh, Western food really is, is not a great um, uh, a diet, a Western diet is, tr is traditionally not, it doesn't have enough of the, the oils and things that we have in Mediterranean diets that are, that are significantly greater for individuals to live long, healthy lives. So things like that, I, I think are, are really important. Um, and also, you know, when you're exercising and, and, and you're doing things like this, this also helps tremendously. So, that, that's great. That, that's great information because those are the influencers of our environment that then um, can play definitely into our favor in terms of the aging process. So one of the things that we that has been uncovered in research before is um, in terms of aging, things like telomere length have been used to predict um, our biological age or, or how well we're aging. And, and we know that Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementias are diseases of aging when we see the body, quote unquote, malfunctioning over time because of age. And so telomere length was seen as a little bit of predictive in terms of how we're aging and biological age. Can you give us a background on that? And if there's any other research out there that can give us information in terms of how we age or how we age well? Yeah, sure. So, so telomere length was was described um, very long time ago. Usually associated with cancer, um, that was where the first descriptions was. And you've seen extending of telomere length and shortening of telomere length that's associated with aging. Uh, a colleague of mine, Dr. Steve Horvath at UCLA, um, and I are actually working on a grant application together, and we are looking at um, his new paradigm, which is called the biological clock of aging. And this is a new predictor of age, and it's far superior than telomere length. This has been published in many manuscripts over the last couple of years. And we are now taking this and looking at, at the same paradigm with the context of Alzheimer's disease. So it has been in the literature for, for, for decades now that Alzheimer's disease may just be a form of accelerated aging. And uh, in order to counter this or to even prove it right or wrong, we have putting, put in a grant application to study if individuals who have Alzheimer's disease or individuals who are, are um, at risk of Alzheimer's disease, if we see these kinds of um, increased in DNA methylation is what we're looking at specifically of these gene sets. 
And we'll be able to predict at a greater uh, prediction rate than with uh, telomere length, whether these individuals will fall in this category of increased risk of dementia. That's, that's fascinating. So if looking at a different mechanism to really predict aging um, and what is normal versus abnormal aging um, as a predictor uh, in terms of seeing whether Alzheimer's is, is really the product of accelerated aging. That's, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. So what drives you every day to be able to um, do the, the really specified work that you do in terms of uh, looking at Alzheimer's in, in the way that you do. Um, give, a, give us a little bit of, of, of your motivation, your why, um, you know, that you're sharing with us. Yeah, um, that's, that's, that's a tough one. So, I, I mean, mine's a little bit, uh, a little more deep-rooted uh, probably than, than most, or, or maybe not. Uh, my my fascination with with uh, with Alzheimer's disease or dementia, for that matter, um, really started as a very young age for me. I, I was about 16 years old when I uh, um, I had to take my grandfather, which at the time was my best friend, um, and I had to put him into the uh, care facility because uh, he wouldn't go with anyone else. He didn't trust anybody. Uh, so I had a, at 16 is a pretty tough thing to do, um, but I had to put him in there uh, because he was really at risk of hurting himself. And my mother was driving home from work one day and she saw him driving his bicycle in the middle of the street against traffic. And, uh, that was kind of the last straw. And so I had to put him in there and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And so from, from that day forth, really, I knew it was going to be something uh, to do with, with that. Uh, It was pretty impactful in my life. Initially, I was going to go to, uh, to medical school to be a neurologist is what I wanted to do. Um, but I had the opportunity to work in uh, Dr. Joseph Rogers' lab um, to do some uh, some basic research to see if this is what I wanted to do. And I, f- I just fell in love with it. And I just love the idea of figuring out why this is happening, not necessarily just giving an individual treatment um, for a symptom. Um, so I felt like there was I was limited to what I could do as a physician. And I felt like I would be able to really hone in on this this, uh, this demon that, that, that took so much from me at a young age. That's a, that's a fantastic why. I remember some of your early research that we talked about, you know, many years ago. One of, one of the landmark things was uh, twin studies, if you, you remember that, right? Um, so tell us about your research with the twin studies and why that was sort of foundational to epigenetics. Yeah, I mean, at the at the time, uh, you know, first of all, let me tell you, it, it took about uh, four years to publish because no one believed us, um, and uh, five or six different journals, and finally, we we were able to publish it in the Public Library of Science, um, and yeah, so it was a it was a um, very interesting study. So, I mean, this re- really encap- encapsulates really our our conversation as a whole, is that we have these pair of identical twins. They were monozygotic twins. They were discordant for Alzheimer's disease. So what that means is essentially one twin got Alzheimer's and the other one didn't. And, and at the time, really, um, most of the work that had been done is, is, is largely associated with genetics. So if these are two identical genetically humans, so wouldn't you suggest that they should both get Alzheimer's disease? Absolutely. That makes sense, right? You know, it was it was baffling to me. So I reached out to a colleague of mine, Anne McKee, over at Boston University. She's a neuropathologist out there. Um, 
and she she just she just had these twins. It was just a really rare thing, and so we, we had done some analysis on them. We did DNA methylation analysis. So again, going back to this epigenetic thing, looking at this, um, you know, is there is there big differences between the two individuals? And we found these just incredibly different DNA methylation profiles between one twin versus the other twin, which a lot of these genes that are turned on should be turned off, things like that. Um, we were finding these individuals, but they're identical. So it had to be something that was extracellular. It couldn't be something that was inside that's going on, you know, from genes passed on from mom and dad. So we digged, digged in a bit and uh, figured out the lifestyle and what's going on with these two individuals. They're both highly educated individuals, both chemical engineers, PhDs. Um, they grew up in the same community, the same town, and in fact, just live across the street from each other, both married, had children, um, all these, everything was exactly the same. The only major difference between the two is that the individual that worked, um, that did not get dementia worked in an office job as a chemical engineer. And then the individual who did get dementia worked in a DDT plant, which is a pesticide. So a pest had long-term pesticide exposure. And I think that's an important point to make also is that I don't think these exposures to these chemicals is like if one day you're spraying weeds in your yard, um, it's not going to increase your risk of dementia. But this individual worked in this in this field for 40 years. So I, I think it's just repetitive, repetitive exposure over the lifetime of an individual, which has major effects. So so, you know, that that underscores, like you said, everything that you had talked about just a little bit earlier, that the genes, the inheritance that you grow, grow up with from your parents don't determine the final story. That story's getting written every day, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's every day. I mean, you, you remember that commercial that was a while back? It's like, uh, it's not only your father, Alfredo, but it's your, it's pasta Alfredo as well. <laughs> that, that increases your risk, you know, because that's the truth. I mean, you know, people like to blame their parents, but, you know, that's just the way it is. That's, that's pretty common, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, look, if mom and dad pass down uh, things that make you at risk, you can consider that you have at-risk gene set, but the things that you do in your life can accelerate that path. They can make it faster. Think of an accelerant, like a gasoline to a flame. So that, that's, see, that's exactly what um, I've been preaching for years, as you know, is that aspect of what we can do via our lifestyle that can either accelerate our risk or look at the prevention model. And, and you alluded to things like the Mediterranean diet, the healthy oils and, and, and things along those lines, which we don't find in our standard American diet. And so we, we collectively, oftentimes as Americans, put that accelerant into our aging profile and our risk stratification for disease by our simple things that we do consciously and unconsciously. And, and in terms of what we're trying to promote at Brain Health 365 is that we can do things that really um, lower our risk for a lot of these neurodegenerative diseases. And, and this is, you know, on a scientific standpoint, the, we, the work that you're doing really amplifies the fact that we are an active participant in, in what happens as we age. Yeah, I, I, I can agree with that more. You know, I mean, um, you know, People always say that, you know, this is our destiny, but really you, you do have the opportunity to, to make that change. It, it is really up to you at the end of the day. And look at it. And I, and I think that can be said for a lot of things that we do. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we, we have, we, we are in control, somewhat in control of our destiny, uh, you know, through lifestyle changes. Um, you know, we, we've seen, we see it all the time. Um, individuals, even with diabetes, I mean, changing their diet, they're no longer diabetic or, um, you know, individuals who have heart disease and, and do major changes to their diet and lifestyle and they're significantly better than they were before. You know, but I, I think that everyone really needs to understand is that we are all living beyond our biological ages. So our biology tells us, you know, maybe we should live to 45, 50 years old, uh, maybe 60 at the most. But with the advent of medicine, um, you know, I mean, we're living well beyond where our biology tells us to. I mean, with, with, um, blood pressure medication alone, um, you know, individuals should have passed their biology should have said, well, they should have passed in their forties and fifties because their heart just can't handle any living any longer. So with that, as we age and as we live longer, now we're asking questions of what are we going to do? How are we going to keep people healthy? How, you know, they're living well, their bodies were not built to live till 90, a hundred years old. So with that, it's going to come an increase in dementia because aging is the most salient, salient risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, any other kind of neurological disorders there are. So it's, it's something that we're just going to have to face. So you have your hands full then because ultimately research is going to lead the way for us to age well. And, and that's really where a lot of the research is, is headed in terms of aging well and and what we need to do and understanding like you said those aging um properties and and learning how to um to take care of our bodies and to have our bodies adapt to to, to living longer and so you know your job security seems to be um you know well taken care of as all of us search um for better ways to to age and to and and specifically brain health um in 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 its entirety so as we kind of close up, can you give our audience um, your personal brain health tip? Um, something that you, uh, you know, through research and, and things that you just kind of ascribe to that you can just share with us as, uh, as your tip for, for healthy brain aging. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I, th I think, honestly, my, my most, um, I think the most significant brain health tip is, is one that I, that I talked about earlier is, is that you really need to challenge your brain. Um, and I mentioned earlier that, you know, we become complacent as we age. And I think that's the biggest, um, risk factor for unhealthy aging is that we just stop growing. Um, you know, people think of growth as size, but really we're, we're, we're still, even though we're, you know, in our 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, we can still learn. We can still create new connectivity. We can still we can still challenge theories. We can we can learn to paint the Mona Lisa. Um, you know, I, I think that with um, good nutrition, um, you know, if you could focus on more of a Mediterranean diet, it seems to be really really helpful for a lot of things and not just brain health. The way I always look at it is, what's good for your heart is good for your brain. And I think that that's a really easy way to look at, you know, so everything you see that's good for your heart, it's always going to be good for your brain. I can tell you in my personal, I mean, I take vitamins every single day of my life. I, I like everyone thinks I'm crazy, but I, I mean, I take, I will tell you what I take. So you, so you guys can take it if you want or, or don't. 
I take a B12 vitamin, and that's really important for methylation. It's one of the it's one of the critical cofactors in in the in the process of making a methyl group. Um, so I take a multi B vitamin. I take vitamin D every single day, and the reason why I take vitamin D every single day is because of its importance in inflammation. It's a it's a super helpful for reducing inflammation both in body and in brain. Um, and so I take that every day, and I take my fish oil every day. And uh, those are the three three I take without question every single day. It's in the pill box ready for you to take. So with vitamins, living a good, healthy lifestyle and making sure to challenge myself. Even now, I'm still – it's not – I'm learning how to – right now, I'm doing uh, a metal work. I've never done metal work. But now that you have access to YouTube, I'm – I mean, I'm, I'm making – Pretty neat things. And uh, last year, I focused on on woodworking, and I was making all kinds of wood things. And then the year before, I focused on painting. So I'm just trying to get better and, and still learn. You know, I mean, we're not riding bicycles anymore, so we have to we have to figure out ways to learn and, and really challenge our mind. I I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, even specifically with those supplements, too. I, I mirror those as well and uh, encourage everybody to also participate in taking that kind of supplement to be able to boost our brain health. So I'd like to thank thank you very much for being our guest today. And for those of you who want to be in tune uh, with Dr. Mastroni's work, uh, you can go uh, online to uh, asu.edu in the Biodesign Center there, and you can take a look at what he's doing and, and what he's up to. Uh, again, an expert in the field of epigenetics. Um, I'm happy to call him my friend and colleague. And um, so this is Brian Brown, host of Brain Health 365, signing off. And again, thanking our guest today for the wonderful information and look forward to having you on a future episode. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brian. My pleasure. We encourage listener engagement and invite you to submit your brain health questions to us at questions at brainhealth365.com. During each episode, we will select and address submitted questions. If your question is chosen, you will receive a fantastic mug to enjoy your favorite hot brain healthy beverage. This episode's question comes to us from Henry O. I notice that I'm not as focused as I used to be, and I'm concerned that it may be more than normal aging. Is there something I can do to find out for sure? Thanks for your question, Henry. If you're a Medicare recipient, every 12 months you get a wellness benefit at which you get preventative screening. One of those preventative screenings that you get is a cognitive assessment that's done in your PCP's office. This is the first stage to address any cognitive difficulties that you have on a yearly basis. If you are not a Medicare recipient, there are many organizations out there that do cognitive assessments to give you that baseline that looks for the smallest changes to your memory and thinking over time. If you'd like to know what some of those organizations are, feel free to email us and we'll get that information to you. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast and thank you to our sponsors. Please visit our website, brainhealth365.com for more information or to become a sponsor. Feel free to follow us on socials and join the conversation. We look forward to welcoming you on our next episode. 
Remember to subscribe to this podcast on the app of your choice.